Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented small law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through The Lawyerist Lab. And now, from the team that brought you the Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast hosts. Hey, y'all. I'm Zach Glazer. And I'm Jennifer Wiggum, and this is episode 452 of the Lawyer's Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, Zach Glazer interviews Ed Walters about data and privacy in the AI world. Today's podcast is brought to you by Clio, Posh Virtual Receptionists, and LawPay. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support, so stay tuned, and we'll tell you more about them later on. Hey, Zach. Hey, Jennifer, if that is you. I, you never know. I never show my face. Nobody's ever seen my face in the history of a lawyerist. So it's kind of a thing. You could be an AI bot at this point. How can you prove it? I mean, I mean, there's literally a way to prove it called a Turing test. Oddly, oh, we are going to get into that in this interview Ooh. with Ed Walters. Apparently, AI is passing the heck <gasps> out of Turing tests now. Oh, and no. We won't get into too much because he explains it well, but... Haven't we seen Terminator and Terminator 2 and Terminator Revisited? Right. But I mean, really, how bad of an idea could it be if you don't come back personally to stop yourself from doing it? That's true. You know? Yeah. I mean, there there definitely was like a hero arc in that. Right. Yeah. That's kind of what I go with. Like, if somebody's not coming back from the future to stop me from doing something. Yeah. Really. I mean, it's a privilege to have your future self come back. I mean, not everybody gets that. Right. Check right. your time traveler privilege. Okay. But anyways, so a question I wanted to ask you is, so AI is everybody here. We're hearing it. There was an article in the latest bench and bar about lawyers being scared of AI. I don't know. There's a lot of things going on. Mm -hmm. But one thing is I think there are these other ways to use AI in law firms or in the office that we're just not thinking about. Mm -hmm. And I have a feeling that you know some of these ways. So I was going to ask you, what are they? I know some ways. And I, I think the big thing here is understanding what types of tools are out there and then being creative with it. Ed and I get into kind of the research aspects, you know, kind of the how do you use artificial intelligence or large language models or something like that to help you practice law, to help you actually do the practice of law. And so what's interesting though, is how do you use as if that's not interesting? What's also <laughs> interesting is how do you use AI or how are people using AI to help them run their law offices, you mm. know, to kind of help them do the things in their office. And so understanding what type of tools are out there, I think people can get really creative with it. One of the things a lot of people are doing is to use a generative AI, something like ChatGPT, to create marketing efforts. Hmm. And it can be done in, in multiple different ways because generative AI is kind of figuring out what is a likely answer to something, what sounds like an answer to something. And quite frankly, marketing is not a bad place to kind of like wield that power. Oh, totally. It's flexible especially if you're talking about small things, like what would be a good caption for this article? What would be a good abstract for this article? What would be a good article for me to write about 
a blog mm. post for me to write about, set a calendar for me to a cadence for me to write because it's going out there into this worldwide web and, and wild world of the worldwide web and just gathering a ton of information and kind of bringing back what is a likely answer. It's not even what's the most likely answer, but what is a likely answer? And frankly, yeah. there are some times where that's okay. Yeah. We can also get into, you know, you can create your logo using some of these artificial intelligence tools to say, I, I need a logo based on, on this. You have to have some, some parameters. I like to use it as either a first draft yeah. of things or to create outlines for things, especially when we're talking about, you know, I, I do a lot of writing here at Lawyerist, as do many of us. One of the most difficult things to do when you're writing, and I think a lot of attorneys have this feeling as well, is to just create the structure, right. create the outline of what you're talking about. And quite frankly, chat GPT specifically, GPT-4, 3, you know, and even BARD, the Google product, do a good job of kind of creating that basic skeleton of something. And then if you look at it, you can go, eh, I don't really like exactly how that's going, but it, it gets you close enough. And then writing an article around that is, is relatively easy. So having it create outlines for blog posts, you can also have it create questions that you ask for new hires, you know, things that are creative that don't have a lot of potential for if you really, really, you know, you don't have to have massive exactness. Right. You know, I think that's the problem with part of the problem with creating a brief using something like chat GPT. And there, there are many problems with that, none of which are chat GPT worked incorrectly. Right. And we get into that with Ed, but it's you're, you're not using the right tool because this is something that isn't really about generating something whole cloth. It's about doing research, you know, and so yeah. research is kind of difficult to do, but there are a lot of things that we can do in our office that allow for us to use an algorithm. Is it something that we would use an algorithm for, you know, and an algorithm is really just a process of doing something. Yeah. And so is it prime for that? You know, you can translate things with AI. Now, my issue with something like translation is, do you have the ability to check its work? Right. If I take something and I translate it into Spanish, I have a reasonable understanding of Spanish. I can't check its work. Right. You know, and I think that's the big thing here. So, yeah, yeah there's a lot of things that you can do with, uh, with AI that are safe. And I think the, the biggest thing is making sure that we're safe, taking responsibility for what it is that is created by these tools, yes. because they are just tools. They're not, right. you know, we're, we're not giving them the ability to have copyright, even, right. you know, there's still a human element that needs to be there. Right. There is still a human element because we, we aren't at a place where these things are going to take over the world just yet. No Terminator. Not yet. Not yet. But you know, who's to say if it's coming or not. <laughs> Well, let's hear more with your conversation with Ed. Hi, I'm Ed Walters. I am the Chief Strategy Officer of VLEX and the founder of FastCase, the legal research service that is available to most members of bar associations for free. I was a lawyer at Covington and Burling before, before that, and I'm very excited to be here today. 
Ed, thanks for being with me. I'm, I'm excited to have you here. Every time somebody says, you know, Fastcase is likely available to you through your bar association, I'm like, yeah, probably like 12. And it, no, it's it's a lot. It's most. It probably is available to you through your bar association. 47 out of the 50. Yeah, yeah. The best <laughs> bar associations in the country. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to make sure that, that people know that's not just a throwaway sentence. It likely is available to you through your, your bar association. So you know, there's there's more than 1.2 million lawyers who have subscription access to Fastcase and more than 3 million lawyers around the world who have access to VLEX and Fastcase together. Well, fantastic. Well, that's why we have you on today is because you, you are very knowledgeable in that you know, legal research, legal data, and specifically today, artificial intelligence space of kind of dealing with a lot of this is just manipulation of data. And I say manipulation, not in like a bad way, just like manipulating. So wanted to have you on to talk about some of the issues that we're having with artificial intelligence. There are some, some big headlines being made related to people doing research with AI tools, specifically chat GPT. So I wanted to bring you on for that. But before we do that, two things. Want to kind of introduce VLEX. What is VLEX to people? Yeah, well, so Fastcase merged with VLEX at the end of March, beginning of April 2023. VLEX is like a peer company. It's a merger of equals. We were together moving to democratize the law and make legal mm -hmm. research smarter. Fastcase in the US, VLEX starting in Spain, but then around the world. VLEX had amazing breadth. They had more than 100 countries law mm -hmm. online, a huge subscriber base. Fastcase was very deep in the US, where VLEX didn't really have much of a presence. When you combine the two, like I said before, it's more than 3 million lawyers subscribed around the world, uh, more than a billion, 1 billion with a B uh, documents in the <laughs> library and the law of more than 100 countries. Mm -hmm. So I think, I hope it's not an exaggeration to say it is in breadth the largest in scope, law library, online legal research platform ever built, by far the most subscribers of any mm -hmm. legal research platform ever created. It's a really cool opportunity to kind of globalize the mission that we started Fastcase with 23 years ago to democratize the law. Mm -hmm. That mission is not just about the US, it's about the whole world. The same problems that exist here exist everywhere. Right, right. Well, I, I think that's important to to note before we get started, because a lot of this discussion around artificial intelligence and what it's doing, especially in relation to research, is premised on having good data to connect with. And so I want to make sure that we're kind of talking about a resource that has very, very good and very broad data. But as we dive in, I'd also like to kind of make some definitions here. AI is a big big word that means, quite honestly, very little, but also a ton at the same time. When we're talking about AI kind of in the legal space, what is that kind of to you? What, what are you thinking about in there? If we can kind of focus in on some stuff here. That's a very sophisticated question. You know, the term <laughs> artificial intelligence uh, goes back to a 1956 conference at Dartmouth. And the idea was that you could create with software the same outputs that human thought or human intellectual labor could, mm -hmm. but by a different means. Maybe the same inputs, different process, but then similar or better outputs. And to demystify this a little bit, we use it all the time, of course. We use artificial intelligence when we use spell check. 
So lawyers use artificial intelligence every day. When you type a text to somebody and your phone changes the word to ducking, uh, you're using artificial intelligence. <laughs> In some ways, calculators are artificial intelligence. And so yeah, I think when we're talking about this in law, I want to demystify it a little bit. I'm in favor of using artificial intelligence, but I'm against magical thinking. Mm -hmm. So I'm not into the concept of robot lawyers or something like that. If someone tells you they built a robot lawyer, you should run, doesn't exist, shouldn't exist. No more than a calculator is a robot mathematician. Right. There are still mathematicians in the age of calculators, and there are still lawyers in the age of artificial intelligence tools for law. The military uses artificial intelligence and robots for things that are dull, dirty, or dangerous. And I hope that's the aspiration for how we use artificial intelligence in law. It's the reason I think that the first major application for AI was discovery. Like mm -hmm. the worst part of practicing law immediately went to artificial intelligence. And there are more lawyers in the AI discovery world than there were before. Right. It's not like lawyers lost their jobs or lawyers who primarily did document review no longer exist. It's just that the worst part of our job, we have automated. That's a, a funny thing to tease out just slightly because not only did we automate the worst part of our job, but we've, we've been able to do a better job. And that area of the law has kind of grown. You know, we do more e-discovery now. We are willing to either send over more documents or accept more documents now and look at things. So it hasn't just said, hey, we're going to just destroy this, this area. We've just made it <laughs> better. And frankly, in, in some ways, you know, even broader. So yeah, like you said, we, we've got more attorneys working in that space now than we, we really ever have. So the artificial intelligence, I, obviously, we have been using it in a lot of different places. I think that Apple has decided not to change ducking anymore. So I think they're, they're even <laughs> adjusting right. artificial intelligence as we speak. But what we think of, and I think a place that's kind of ripe for what I think a lot of attorneys think is ripe for artificial intelligence is kind of this research area. And we don't really stop at research. We start to think, if something could write my briefs for me, that would be fantastic. And that's like three steps, really that we're asking artificial intelligence to do. Obviously, we have this very recent issue that we won't really go into too much because it's just not worth really going into. The attorney who used ChatGPT4 to create a brief and then got in trouble because of many different reasons. But I, I think that's a good entree into this. Like, why did that person get in trouble? What was their, uh, there are many mistakes there, but what was <laughs> the mistake really, if you had to kind of say what it was? Well, I think the sexy answer, the one everyone wants to talk about is ChatGPT. But I think it's worth pointing out here, as Bob Ambrogi and others have, mm -hmm. this is a lawyer who lied on right. multiple occasions, right? Who had some kind of routine non-AI issues with the court, who submitted cases that he hadn't read, mm -hmm. whose law partner said he was on vacation when he wasn't. There are real issues with candor to the tribunal that have nothing to do with artificial intelligence. Right. But putting that to one side, I think the, the kind of original sin of this whole story was using the wrong tool for the job. 
So mm-hmm. this lawyer tried to create a shortcut by using ChatGPT to ask a question, to ask for legal authorities in the hope that ChatGPT would create a list of cases that stand for this proposition. Mm-hmm. So there's two problems here. I mean, the first problem, I think, is he's using it for a task that is not created to do. Large language models statistically create plausible sounding sentences that are statistically likely that one word follows the next, but they're not made to answer questions. So you may remember like IBM Watson created this artificial intelligence that would play Jeopardy. And in that case, it was sort of create a hypothesis about what the answer was because it was Jeopardy and use that to kind of create a question that matched it. That is really like a question answer tool. Right. ChatGPT is not that. If you ask ChatGPT you know, a question, what you'll get is a statistically likely answer. So here's a good example of that. I recently took a list of books that I was trying to alphabetize. It was a long list mm-hmm. and took the unsorted list and plugged it into ChatGPT and said, please sort this alphabetically. And it did. But the last item in the list started with the letter M, as in Mary, after Z. And my Hmm. question was, like, why is this the last item in the list? And the answer was, because M is the last letter of the alphabet. So are you sure about that? I said, ah, no, of course, you're right. Z is the last letter of the alphabet. All right, do you want to try that sorting again? But But the issue here is that I asked a question that has an actual answer mm-hmm. and the tool isn't made to answer the question. And in this case, the lawyer says, can you give me precedence that stand for this point of law to a large language model trained on the World Wide web right. of all things, a source full of misinformation and racism and bias Massive and trolls. Bias. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. But on top of that, asking it to create something without answering the question is not using the right tool for the job. The last thing I'll say about this is if you ask a magic eight ball, whether you should have a tumor removed, the magic eight ball will answer you very confidently. <laughs> Signs point to yes, you know, but we shouldn't think for a minute that a magic eight ball is giving out medical advice. It's not scanning you for what kind of tumor you have mm-hmm. and large language models you know, at least as currently created, aren't made to answer questions. It's not a tool for answering questions. It's a tool for statistically creating plausible answers. Now, the last thing I'll say about this, the true last thing I'll say about it, is that there's also a problem baked into at least the chat GPT family of tools, Mm -hmm. which is that they are made to sound super authoritative. Right. When you say, I have a question, can you answer it? The answer is not just, here's a statistical blob of words. It's like, absolutely. I'll be happy to answer that question. Here are four precedents that stand for that point of law. They have citations that we're going to cite for you. And here's mm-hmm. a quote from that case, which I think you could forgive people for saying, wow, that sounds like what I'd get back if I asked an associate that question. The right. problem is the case doesn't exist. The citation is to something else. The quote is fabricated and the point of law may not even exist. Right. And so the 
the thing we need to be careful about here is we need to have something in between the belief that artificial intelligence is all garbage mm -hmm. or the belief that artificial intelligence is omniscient and is about to become self-aware and travel back in time to kill our parents. So that begins, I think, really with understanding what the tools do, what they're good for, and how to use them in ways that are good. Well, Ed, Ed let's take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll talk about what the tools are used for, how to use them, and how to kind of use them properly. I think the next question we have is, how does this jive with our professional responsibility obligations and things like that? So here when we come back, we'll, we'll talk about those things as well. The Lawyer's Podcast is brought to you by Posh Virtual Receptionists. As an attorney, do you ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call while you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting, or schedule an appointment with a client while you're elbow deep in an important case? Well, that's where Posh comes in. Posh is a team of professional, U.S.-based live virtual receptionists who are available 24-7, 365. They answer and transfer your calls so you never miss an opportunity. With Posh handling your calls, you can devote more time to billable hours and building your law firm. And the convenient Posh app puts you in total control of when your receptionist steps in. So if you can't answer, Posh can. And if you've got it, Posh is always just a tap away. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Even better, Posh is extending a special offer to Lawyerist listeners. Visit posh.com forward slash Lawyerist to learn more and start your free trial of Posh Live Virtual Receptionist Services. That's posh.com forward slash Lawyerist. And by Clio. What do solo and small firm lawyers with great client relationships have in common? They use cloud-based legal practice management software to run their law firms. This is just one finding from Clio's latest legal trends report. There's no getting around it. The fact is, when it comes to client expectations, standards are higher than ever before for lawyers. Proof is in the numbers. 88% of lawyers using cloud-based software report good relationships with clients. For firms not in the cloud, barely half can say that. That gap is significant. For more information on how cloud software creates better client relationships, download Clio's Legal Trends Report for free at clio.com slash trends. That's Clio, spelled C-L-I-O, dot com slash trends. And by LawPay. Did you know 80% of lawyers struggle to make their firms profitable? If you want to build a thriving practice, you need the right set of tools. LawPay, the number one legal payments processor, in my case, the leader in legal practice management software have joined forces to offer law firms a complete software solution. Access everything your firm needs to succeed all in one place. Track time, send invoices, get paid, handle accounting and three-way trust reconciliation, manage client intake, and more without switching between programs. Plus, access dozens of integrations that seamlessly sync with your current software. Over 65,000 lawyers trust LawPay and MyCase to streamline their firm's operations. In fact, users get paid 39% faster and gain three billable hours per day on average. So why wait? Learn more and schedule a demo now at lawpay.com forward slash lawyerist. That's lawpay.com forward slash lawyerist. And we're back with Ed Walters talking about artificial intelligence in the law. And before the break, we were kind of talking about right tool for right job. And, you know, this idea that 
artificial intelligence is this salve for everything. And so we just go and say, well, what can it be used for? And it's so confident, especially in the LLM space, specifically chat GPT or Bard. It's so confident that we say, well, that has to be, that has to be right. It, it just mansplains <laughs> the heck out of things to us. So how do we use this intelligence? How do we use these tools properly? Because LLMs aren't the only things that we can be doing or taking advantage of in our offices. Yeah. Well, so I'll just say, like, I'm blown away by this generation of tools, the tools from Anthropic, Bard, mm -hmm. from Alphabet, GPT-4, from OpenAI and Microsoft. Very impressive, extremely good. So I teach the law of robots at Georgetown yes. Law and at Cornell Tech. And I used to teach the Turing test, the idea that you could ask a question and there's an answer that comes out and you don't know whether the answer came from a machine or a human. It was a test of the sophistication of AI. Right, right. I don't teach that anymore. That's history, right? It doesn't exist. Like wow. by far, GPT-3, certainly GPT-3.5, like the Da Vinci version of it, mm -hmm. and by far GPT-4, more than passed the Turing test. That doesn't exist anymore. It's a benchmark that's long past. I just kind of want to pause on that for a second because I don't know that yeah. I really that, that I really recognize that. So the Turing test, obviously named for Alan Turing, is the can we get a response back from a computer that we don't know if it's a human or a computer responding back? We actually can't say it's not a human is essentially what what it is. And so we're we're past that. Yeah. And for years and years, computer scientists were touting the fact that it would take now, four whole questions, five questions before you could find out that it was a machine and not a human. Mm -hmm. I think we're like, you know, 29 questions, like oh, infinite wow. questions in, in some ways. When AI starts to try to convince a journalist that his wife doesn't love him, <laughs> it's, <laughs> we're pretty far past the Turing test. We've, we've gone, <laughs> gone into some personal things there at that point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But so like uh, maybe just on the topic of what AI is good for and what it's not good for. Yes. So like uh, you wouldn't ask the calculator on your computer to create a budget for lawyerist next year, right? It's very right. good with numbers, but it doesn't have like a, a notional idea of how much lawyerist should grow next year, mm -hmm. right? And in, in a similar way, tools that create statistically likely ends of words aren't designed to answer questions. Some things they're good for though, like they're very good at summarization. In Docket Alarm in the past year, we created a tool that when you open a docket sheet and it has hundreds of entries, you can just, you know, sort of mouse over one of the numbers in the docket and it will create like a GPT 3.5 mm -hmm. summary of the whole document. So you don't have to open hundreds of documents one by one to find out what they say. You can get a concise summary that's reliable and accurate. It's not statistically trying to generate things. It's taking the content of a document and condensing it into a summary. And those tools are amazing for that, like very, very good. And that's kind of a fundamentally different thing to do to, you know, one is, is trying to generate something out of whole cloth. Right. And the other is saying, here is this silo of information, what does it say? And, and that's a, you know, you're not going to get 
hallucinations out of that sort of thing. You're not going to get just made up stuff out of that because it has a specific directive, specific job to do. Yeah, that's right. I'll break a little news here. I think you heard it here first. Okay. Internally, it's not a big surprise. People internally at Velex, we have these AI labs who are working on new tools. And one of the things we're working on is an adversarial process that will take when considering what the statistically most likely next words are or citations mm-hmm. are, it is comparing it against the actual law, comparing it against actual citations, actual quotes, actual cases, mm-hmm. actual statutes from around the world to create things like research memos, right. but research memos that don't have the risk of hallucination. I just saw the you know kind of first outputs from the labs. It takes a lot to impress me. I don't impress very easily. I was really impressed, <laughs> like blown away by the first versions of this. So I, I do think there's great potential in the future right. for large language models that aren't trained on the Huffington Post or BuzzFeed or mm-hmm. Page Six or the New York Post or whatever, or uh, you know the comment section of Reddit, <laughs> uh, but that are trained on judicial opinions, statutes, constitutions, regulations, mm-hmm. briefs, pleadings, motions to really create first drafts and first drafts that are verifiable, that cite to real sources, that you can click links and go directly to those sources. Right. So I, I think there's potential for that. But that kind of last step, that almost like an LLM citator, if you will, I don't think yet really exists. It needs to. I mm-hmm. think it will be relatively common five years from now. You yeah. know, you'll see it in VLEX and Thomson Reuters and Relx products, but it's also vital, like to avoid the idea of fabricated citations or phony law. And that, again, that's the the right tool for the right job. We can make with the proper training and and research, we can make generative AI do what we want it to do. It's just that the tools that are out there right now, for the most part, you know, it's certainly the ones that we're talking about are not built for that. Chat GPT is not, is not built for that. And so I really like your eight ball example because that eight ball might be right, but it's, it's just sheer, like (laughs) like it's random as to whether it's going to be right. So yeah, could chat GPT possibly be right? Sure. So could flipping a coin. Right. Right. (laughs) And and I I think that kind of gets into When I was practicing, I always told people that a lot of my job was being the adult in the room, which is not my job now, but a lot of my (laughs) job was was being the adult and the the most responsible person in the room. And I think when we're dealing with chat GPT, AI, large language models, and, and using artificial intelligence to create or even summarize anything, the question kind of comes up to me of like, who's the adult in the room? Who's the one responsible for this? And then why? Why am I responsible for this? So uh, kind of touching on what, what, what is our responsibility towards these artificial intelligence tools? Yeah, that's a great question. In 2019, I wrote a law review article basically talking about the intersection of AI and the model rules of mm-hmm. professional responsibility adopted by most states as their like kind of local rules. And I touch on this a little bit. We can maybe link to it in the show notes, but oh yeah, definitely. Rule 5.1 of the ABA's model rules, duty of supervision. And the idea is that you know yeah. a partner in a law firm or a lawyer who works together with other lawyers and other legal professionals is responsible for them. 
you have direct supervisory authority, mm-hmm. but the buck stops with the license, the licensed yeah. professional in that situation. And I think with AI, the idea is very similar. If you're going to use AI to practice law, you have to make sure that you are ultimately responsible, which right. you know, in, in the Stephen Schwartz case that we talked about at the top, there's no problem with using even the wrong tool for the job mm-hmm. if you then read the cases to make sure they exist, to make sure that they say what the chatbot says they say. And right. then you discover that they don't, and the buck stops with you. And so you could find out that the magic eight ball is wrong. You could mm-hmm. find out that the chatbot doesn't really know what it's talking about because you take the ultimate responsibility, the duty of supervision, just like you would with the first year associate, just mm-hmm. like you would if you were supervising a law student or a paralegal or another allied legal professional in the firm, the buck stops with you. And that's, I think, the rule we should take away from working with artificial intelligence. You have that same rule 5.1 duty uh, professional responsibility. I like that because it really doesn't matter if I like it or not. It, it is. But I, I like that because it makes it a little bit less scary and more approachable. I've always had that. I've always had to do that. If I have an associate write something, if I have my friend, write, whatever it is, I still have to look into that and make sure it's correct. And I think that one of the bigger mistakes right now is us saying, okay, well, I trust that. Well, why do you trust you know, a tool that you haven't proven is correct? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And especially if the tool is trained on the World Wide Web. Right. So as you said early on, data is really at the heart of this. Mm-hmm. I'll point to another, this is self-interested, but I'll point to a book that I authored and edited in 2018 called Data Driven Law that really talks about the importance of legal data in artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. There's even a chapter by Stephen Wolfram talking about this exact subject. If you are going to have any of these tools, they're only going to be as good as the training data. And yeah. so I think in six months, there's going to be 22, 222, 2022 different large language models. Mm-hmm. Transformers are not new. Google invented them you know, six years ago, seven years ago. So I think in some ways, the large language models are going to become commoditized. But what's not going to be commoditized is authenticated, trusted, pure provenance legal data. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what we're pointing in VLEX and Fastcase right now. We've pulled together the most authoritative, broadest scope legal law library and large language model training data set in the world. And I think it's going to produce tools that are authoritative, reliable, that won't change people's responsibility under 5.1 to Mm -hmm. supervise. But I think we'll see because we're going to test it with real law, the results will be much more reliable. It will be more akin to asking a doctor for medical advice, asking for a first opinion that you then go get a second opinion with, Uh, you know, asking somebody to take a look at something, even if you're going to go see your primary physician uh, later. Mm -hmm. I like that, the idea that we can kind of check on these things or having even having tools that that can help us check on these things, because it, it kind of made me think of this idea in writing programs, you know, writing code where many times you have to write code that can hunt bugs 
for you. You know, you you have to write code to find out if something is wrong. And so it it does kind of scare me a little bit thinking about the progression of artificial intelligence and are we going to, and I doubt that we will, but are we going to get to a place where we don't have the capacity to check our tools, you know, that where our tools are just like right outside the leading edge of our checking tools? Because right now I can't envision a scenario where I can't physically go in and check the law that is created, but maybe there is in a, in a future, you know, where I have, I have to use a tool to do this. There's a great Isaac Asimov story about this in the iRobot series. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a, it's a book of short stories, not the Will Smith movie, but the Asimov book <laughs> iRobot is short stories. And the last of those short stories is called the evitable conflict. And in the story, basically we have created a series of algorithms that perfectly allocates work and money and food and responsibility and liability. And the whole world is basically run by these algorithms. Mm -hmm. And they've become so complicated that no person understands how they work anymore. And they start malfunctioning in the story. And that might seem a little far-fetched, but that's exactly the way the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the NASDAQ, the stock exchange works today. Mm -hmm. Most, the vast majority of transactions are algorithmic. It's high-frequency traders that are setting the price for stocks. Mm -hmm. And a large amount of the world's wealth, people's retirements, you know, rely on that system working. But if you ask someone to explain how those interactions all work together, almost no one can. Mm -hmm. And so it's not super far-fetched to think that we might over-rely on these things that you might have in the not-too-distant future, briefs that are prepared completely by software that are opposed completely by software and mm -hmm. then reviewed by judges who are relying completely on software. Mm -hmm. And so you could have real algorithmic transactional justice that happens much faster and then has like, you know, several layers of algorithmic review before a human judge ever considers whether the outcome is correct or not. Right, right. That's where I, I can kind of extrapolate to there. And, <laughs> and it, it, it worries me in a sense, but at the same time, it doesn't because, you know, we do have these rules of professional responsibility, unlike some other areas, no, maybe, but we do have these rules of professional responsibility. And so it brings me to the question of, you know, what sort of responsibility, and I'm, I'm very careful to not use ethical obligation because ethics is a totally different thing than our, our professional responsibility. But what sort of responsibility do we have to understand these tools that we're using, not just to check, but to know how they work? Yeah, that's right. And I'll just say, you know, this was a big concern at the dawn of computer assisted legal research. Online legal mm -hmm. research was thought to be removing a critical component of the lawyer's understanding of the law. Right. Uh, lawyers had to understand the law in order to cite it. And if computers using these uh, newfangled technologies of you know, Boolean queries <laughs> uh, were figuring out what the cases that should be cited might be, we'll dumb down lawyers to a point where they won't understand the law. I think you could debate whether that actually happened in practice or not. Right. But I, I, don't, I, I don't think lawyers understand the law less because we've automated some of that filtering process. We'll take, you know, 50 million legal documents in the law library and filter it down to 
you know, 411 maybe search results mm-hmm. and then rank them by how likely they are to be useful for your work. It doesn't necessarily make us any dumber any more than the original West key number system did the digest system in books where they would filter down this universe of legal cases into topics and subtopics by jurisdiction. I've never actually thought about that before, about how the keys, it's based on another human's perspective of what this case was about. And there could be a a very specific point in a case that they didn't get and didn't kind of put it into the right bucket and you never find it. Yeah, that's right. John B. West is a huge inspiration to me, by the way. I think he's an amazing entrepreneur. I've got nothing bad to say about the key number system. It is by far the most efficient way of doing that task. Absolutely. And it missed cases all the time. Mm-hmm. It would miss issues or miscategorize things or not include something in a key where it's a close call. Could be either, it could be both, and you list it in one and not the other, and you miss something. Mm-hmm. Well, so one thing I, I want to kind of get to before we, we close out is the kind of duty of confidentiality as it relates to artificial intelligence, because I think that's a big question for attorneys right now is, am I putting this information just out there? Am I putting client information into the the web if I put client information into chat GPT or something like that? So I guess kind of what is the relationship of the information that we kind of put into some of these models, these the large language models to like the public, or I guess more importantly, our own kind of private space? I think it's a key issue. So the early versions of ChatGPT did use the queries and the responses to inform the model, mm-hmm. which meant that things that you typed in there weren't confidential. And I think right. there are still settings for those OpenAI tools that can make them public. If you use BARD, mm-hmm. I think the default setting is that whatever you type in as a query or as a prompt is used to retrain the model. So rule 1.6 of the model rules, duty of confidentiality, mm-hmm. the lawyer shall not reveal information relating to the representation of a client unless the client gives informed consent or the disclosure is impliedly authorized in order to carry out the representation. I would not be surprised to have lawyers or law firms begin to ask for it with clients in their engagement letter mm-hmm. permission to disclose that information to large language models with the idea that no individual person is going to read it. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't really breach confidentiality any more than sending, you know, an email that's unencrypted, you know, I think violates that rule of confidentiality. I would mm-hmm. expect clients in that same situation to say, no, <laughs> so yes. to say you may not use queries uh, that are specific to my confidential information in large language models that don't secure and lock down that data any more than I would say you could store our confidential information in the cloud. Right, right. Now, I would expect clients to say that. Well, like kind of getting to the the definition of the word expect, I would hope clients would say that. (laughs) Do I expect (laughs) them all to say that? Probably not. And I think that gets into an informed consent issue. But let's move down that line of, all right, I probably need to and I think it's more than probably. I need to ask my clients if I can put their information, you know, in there. They say no, then, you know, how can I still use these sorts of technologies to help my clients? 
Well, I think the new generation of transformers of large language models mm -hmm. are keeping the prompts confidential. They're okay. not using the prompts to train the model going forward. And so, you know, I think there is going to be some diligence required by lawyers and law firms to make sure that the tools they're using don't breach the duty of confidentiality. For if there is some good reason that we need to use a tool that will, that we get consent from the client. Okay. So it, it really does hit a lot of places on our rules of professional conduct. And honestly, I, I would really encourage people to go read the law review article that we're going to link to in the show notes here. And Ed, I could sit here and chat with you for days <laughs> about this, but I know you've got other things you need to do. So before we kind of leave, what would be your advice, kind of simple advice to an attorney who is just trying to make sure they're taking advantage of AI, but also doing it thoughtfully and just kind of jumping into it just a little bit? What would be your advice to them to do that initially? Well, I think what I would say is we're in a world of great change, a time of really great change. And I think we all need to be open to what those changes might create, what kinds of opportunities they might create. Mm -hmm. And we should do it carefully. Like there's a reading, it's the, there's a reason it's called the bleeding edge. <laughs> there's a lot of bleeding <laughs> that happens there. <laughs> and so if you don't believe me, ask IBM, right? Yeah. I mean, Watson was thought to be the next big thing. It's kind of hard to remember this, but I think the Jeopardy match was in like 2011, mm. 2013. It was like a insanely long ago, right? Oh, yeah. They were just like a little too early. And, you know, they're for the most part not even in the conversation now. Well, that's what I said about Bing just a couple months ago. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> right. <them> now. <laughs> that's right. You know, maybe the, to take a macro metaphor, you sort of want to be Microsoft and not IBM. In this case, so Microsoft remained open to the possibilities, but they proceeded a little more slowly. They were a little more methodical. Mm -hmm. But when they had the opportunity to buy the controlling stake in OpenAI, they were very fast moving. Yeah. And so I think we all need to be very nimble in our thinking right now. And we need to make sure that we're not engaged in magical thinking about AI nor closed-minded thinking about AI. Lots of lawyers I talk to about this say, ah, oh, well, I'm just glad that I'm old enough to be retiring before any of that affects my practice. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, unless you're retiring last year, <laughs> it's going to affect your practice. And so I think we need to be very flexible-minded about those opportunities and opportunistic when we can be. But we need to maintain that same model of critical ethical, responsible thinking that makes us good lawyers in the first place. So it depends is really no, our, our, not our it depends. <laughs> I would say um, it depends, I think, means there's no answer. Here, yeah. the answer is certainly going to be, we are going to use artificial intelligence more in our practice. We already do. Yeah. We should be critical minded about what we use. We should be able to see transparently what sources the training data came from. Okay. Make sure that we trust the provenance of that data. Make sure it's not trained on the open internet. So we need to be critical thinkers. It's the reason we're good lawyers in the first place. Mm -hmm. And we need to be flexible-minded about the opportunities that are coming. Fantastic. 
Ed, I think that's great advice. And I appreciate your time today. I have learned a lot. I know your wealth of information on this. And I would encourage people to go, obviously, to the Law Review article, but also to go pick up the book, Data-Driven Law. Ed, you wrote some and edited, and there's a lot of great minds in there. Some of them have been on this podcast before as well, like Nika Kabiri. We'll drop a link to that as well in the show notes. Ed, thank you for being with me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Zach. The Lawyerist Podcast is edited by Brittany Felix. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discuss here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Here are your first two steps. First, if you haven't read the Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free at lawyerist.com forward slash book. Looking for help beyond the book? Let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyerist.com forward slash community forward slash lab to schedule a 10 minute call with our team to learn more. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.